Warning, some of the themes during my interview involve terrorism and death. Listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Amy Talks. I haven't got the theme music as usual today as it would be inappropriate due to our discussion topic, the 9-11 attacks of 2001. I am joined by Dean Rothbart, the author of September 12th, a book all about how his ex-colleagues at the Wall Street Journal put together a September 12th edition of the paper despite their offices almost being completely destroyed by the 9-11 attacks. As the 20th anniversary is approaching, we discuss why he wanted to put his book, put this book out now, the sense of community and coming together to create the next day's edition of the newspaper, and we mention the last receipt that was ever printed at the Twin Towers. It's a fascinating story. Since this is such a sensitive topic, I've decided on this episode not to have a good news story, um, simply because, again, I would feel it would be a little bit inappropriate. So we're just going to dive right into the interview. I hope you find this discussion as fascinating as I did. So I'm here with Dean. Hello. Hello, Amy. Good to be with you. And you. The premise of this interview is to discuss um, 9-11 as you have written a book called September the September 12th which looks at sort of the Wall, the Wall Street Journal who you worked for at the time kind of coverage of it um, because you got a you got a September 12th edition of the newspaper out after 9-11 which I think is absolutely fascinating so let's just go back to to that day what are your memories of that day and kind of how did it start? You know, I don't, personally don't remember it because I was only six at the time. Um, but kind of what, what were your sort of thoughts when, when, when the day started and kind of how it unfolded? Well, so first of all, there are, Amy, a lot of six-year-olds who actually do still remember it. I mean, it's... it's oh, really? Oh, wow. I'm, I'm not one of them. <laughs> it's one of these global events like when uh, Princess Diana was killed in the car accident when mm-hmm. president kennedy was killed when uh, neil armstrong first stepped onto the moon that leaves a sort of an indelible impression on mm-hmm. a lot of people and uh, i'd like to just i'll answer your question in a minute but i, I just want to sort of set the stage if i might for what this mm-hmm. book is and what it really is not the, so the title of the book is september 12th an American comeback story. It's really a global comeback story. And it, it's, it's less about 9-11, although that's the backdrop for everything in the book, and more mm-hmm. about how a group of people, uh, in this case, journalists and others who work for the Wall Street Journal, how they rallied against really difficult odds to go ahead mm-hmm. and put out a newspaper the next day and so I know from <clears throat> I know from your podcast that among the topics you you visit from time to time is the topic of journalism. Yeah, and, and you yourself have a interest in journalism. It's it's an interesting tale of journalism because we live in an age where many people these days do not trust journalists anymore. No, no. you know their their level of respect has gone down, and yet on nine eleven, <clears throat> it was almost a picture perfect example of what journalists can do to serve mm-hmm. the world 
the Wall Street Journal in 2001 had a daily circulation of about 1.8 million people. And a lot of wow. them, of course, a lot of them were business people mm-hmm. who, um, or, or Wall Street types. But in any case, one of the things that the journalists working at the Wall Street Journal on 9-11 felt strongly about was they didn't want to disappoint their readers by not publishing the next day. And it mm-hmm. wasn't disappointment. It was they felt it would send a message that the terrorists had succeeded if they couldn't publish. So they, yeah. they really tried to rally around the idea that they were not going to let the 9-11 terrorists um, knock them off their feet and mm-hmm. not be able to get back up. I myself had already, Amy, had already departed as an employee of the Wall Street Journal on 9-11. And so my reporting for the book September 12th was really based upon interviewing dozens of my former colleagues uh, at the paper about what happened to them. Mm-hmm. I, I also came across uh, never before published uh, hundreds and hundreds of emails that journal people sent to each other on that day, one to another, uh, mm-hmm. real-time emails that had never been published or seen outside of the company that kind of helped depict the drama of the day mm. in terms of what people were uh, going through. And what it ends up being, Amy, is that you have people who, a good example in the first chapter of the book, I, uh, I talk about the day of a reporter at the journal who's still there named John Hilsenrath. And mm-hmm. John was covering academic economics. He was talking to economics theory professors and and people like at the Federal Reserve Bank to talk about the theory of economics. That was his beat. Mm -hmm. On on 9-11, he happened to be at headquarters uh, when the World Trade Centers were attacked and the Wall Street Journal's headquarters are located or were located just across the street from the World Trade Center. And so really in a period of about 15 minutes, he went from sort of this brainy, uh, economics reporter to a bona fide war correspondent. He was down on the street. Um, he was surrounded by debris from the plane. He was witnessing uh, decapitated bodies and severed limbs. Gosh. Uh, he was interviewing people on the street. And I think it is a uh, illustration of really what journalism is at its finest. And I had a couple of purposes in writing the book but one was to push back against the idea uh, that journalism is not a respectable profession any longer or that there aren't really good, dedicated people out there. There were a lot of brave people in, there are a lot of brave people in the book, uh, September 12th, that I wrote about that mm. really did pick up and do things that they weren't supposed to do, but they understood the importance of of telling the story and getting the paper out. Mm. No, you mentioned um, kind of the the resilience and the kind of rallying together of, of the people to, to to get the the next day's edition out. So, how did that actually work in in kind of real terms? Because obviously, in two thousand and one, technology wasn't what it is today. Like t- uh, mobile phones were just coming into like mainstream use you know, computers, email, that kind of thing. 
so how how did how did they all work together to um to get the the next edition out it's really kind of fascinating amy and you mm -hmm. all, um there were no smartphones in september of 2001 um most people at home if they had internet access they only had internet access as a dial-up service mm -hmm. america online was in in the United States was the main way people accessed the internet. When the Wall Street, the Wall Street Journal building right across from the World Trade Center was evacuated and rendered unusable by 10 o'clock in the morning on 9-11. Most of the reporters who work for the Wall Street Journal hadn't even arrived for work yet because the journal is a morning paper, which means people come in the journalists and editors come in late morning and work until the evening to mm. get the morning paper out. But um, so people were mostly caught at home. Uh, mm -hmm. most, most of the editors, et cetera, were caught at home. There was no phone communication. The only thing that people had with access to typically was email. And there had been plans. Nobody had anticipated ever a tragedy like 9-11 and the complete destruction of their newsroom. Mm -hmm. but, but they had run dress rehearsals in case of, <clears throat> they used to think in case it was a hurricane or some kind of power outage. Yeah, a natural yeah. disaster, yeah. That everybody would report to a, a temporary backup newsroom located 50 miles southwest of Manhattan um, mm -hmm. in a place called South Brunswick, New Jersey. So yeah. some of the people knew instinctively, especially if they lived in New Jersey, to try to get to that location 50 miles away. The, yeah. people, the people who lived in New York, and that really was the majority of people, uh, you know, couldn't get across the bridges or the tunnels to New Jersey because they were shut down. So many of them worked from home or they created little pockets, editing and reporting pockets at different people's homes and filed their stories and got their instructions just by email. Uh, and wow. so it, it was pretty amazing. One apartment in particular, so on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, probably six, seven miles from the Wall Street Journal's uh, head, destroyed headquarters, um, four of the deputy managing editors of the paper were able to make it there because they lived in Manhattan. Yeah. So they worked from there. Uh, but it was it was an interesting story. The the paper's real spiritual and literal um, guide was the managing editor named Paul Steiger. And mm. for most of the morning and early afternoon, he was incommunicado and people presumed he was dead or seriously injured. Oh, wow. Fortunately, it turned out he just couldn't communicate. OK, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. It took him a long time. Mm, mm. Wow, that's 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 really fascinating. Um, especially as you know, working from home wasn't the norm then as it is now. Correct. I kind of want to know your your personal memories of of, of the day if, if if you were there. Your emotions were. Well, thank you. The um, so it's in the book. I I actually didn't want to include my own story because I think the story of others uh, are more dramatic and telling. Uh -huh. but, but people I kept showing the book to, Amy, 
you know, the pre-publication versions kept saying, well, where were you on 9-11? Where were you on 9-11? Well, it turns out that uh, the week, the entire week before 9-11, I was in New York. I was doing reporting and, and uh, with a film crew. I was filming a documentary, if you will, on financial journalism mm -hmm. uh, in the World Trade Center um, oh, wow. on September 8th. But, on, but I was, at that point, I returned to what was then my, still is, I guess, but different home, to my home in Denver. So on, on the morning of 9-11, I was safe in Denver, Colorado, having just returned from uh, the World Trade Center and the Wall Street Journal headquarters, which were both destroyed three days after I was there. I mm -hmm. obviously knew and, and cared and worried about uh, my former colleagues of um, course yeah of course everybody but uh, fortunately I wasn't I wasn't there and I really didn't intend Amy to write a, a book about it but nobody has really ever told this very dramatic story mm. of, of how these journalists pulled together on 9-11 to put out and the next day edition and the edition that they put out won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news it was, and what the people, the, the judges of the Pulitzer Prize, this is what they said directly, that the journal won for comprehensive and insightful coverage executed under the most difficult circumstances. So they didn't mm -hmm. win just because they managed to publish a paper. They won because the paper they managed to publish had coverage that the Pulitzer judges felt were comprehensive and insightful yeah yeah that's that's um, in some ways it's kind of amazing for them but then it's kind of weird that they have to do it under such weird circumstances in such a weird situation if you see what I mean I do and there is kind of a ironic connection to what the world is going through and has been going through since early last year, and that is many of these journalists who were at the Wall Street Journal eventually left the paper and went on to top leadership positions at other news organizations, including mm -hmm. the New York Times, Fortune Magazine, Bloomberg News, Reuters. Mm -hmm. and they learned a lot, at, and the Washington Post, and they learned a lot from their experience on 9-11. So now comes along the uh, coronavirus pandemic and mm. all of these newsrooms now on 9-11 there was really one major newsroom uh, that was shut down and that was the Wall Street Journal but coronavirus COVID-19 really shut down the New York Times the Washington Post the Wall Street Journal you know mm. Fortune, Bloomberg etc but by now these journalists being led by people who used to work at the Wall Street Journal had a much better idea, and obviously the technology has advanced tremendously hmm. as to how to run a newsroom remotely. And so yeah, it's, there it's, are connections. Yeah, yeah, it's very, um, very. What's the word? Um, very fore foreseeing of of what what has what's happened in the last sort of eighteen months, and obviously nobody ever wanted this this nine eleven to happen. But in some ways, it's kind of prepared them for for this this pandemic and this, as you say the technology's um been it is a lot better now um which is great
in terms of when you put this book out, you released this book last uh, this year, I should say, sorry. Um, how come you wanted to do it on the 20th anniversary? Why not the 15th or the 10th? Why, why in 2021? It's an excellent question. And this was an unintended book. Okay. Um, I mentioned to you, Amy, that the guiding light of the Wall Street Journal was a it was because he's he's still alive, but he's no longer at the Wall Street Journal. This uh, fellow named Paul Steiger. Mm-hmm. Paul Steiger spent 16 years running the paper and then left and started a new news organization, a nonprofit called ProPublica, which mm-hmm. has become quite a global phenomena as a investigative um, news service. And so I actually set out in July of 2020 to write a profile, to write a book, a biography of Paul Steiger. I had no intention of writing a book about September 11th. And when mm-hmm. I, in researching the book, the biography of Paul Steiger, I got to a point where I wanted to see what he did on 9-11. And mm-hmm. so I started to for his book, for his biography, hmm. I started to research what happened on 9-11 and decided, actually with his consent, that it was such an amazing story, it needed a book of its own. So I didn't yeah. actually start on this book until December of last year. And wow. it, was, it was by coincidence, really, more than anything, hmm. that we were coming up on the 20th anniversary. And so I pushed to make sure I could get it out on time. Yeah. Now you you mention it's it's um, a story about your or the the journalists at the Wall Street Journal on that day, and I saw um, I saw online that there was a an excerpt from the book and and the lady who um, went into the the shop in the World Trade Center still has the receipt, yes. which is amazing. Wow. Um, you know how. What a, what, what a kind of weird memento to have, I guess. Was So her name is Joanne Lipman. Yeah. Joanne Lipman left the journal eventually and for a time was the uh, editor-in-chief of USA Today. Um, she's a uh, very accomplished journalist. On the morning of 9-11, she was shopping for uh, mementos for her daughter's Rebecca's birthday, which was on 9-12. Mm. So she was in the lower concourse of the World Trade Center, and her daughter wanted a couple of locker magnets for her school locker. And uh, Joanne was there and and was in line, and people started to, they looked out from the store to the concourse, and they saw people kind of running and being shuttled out of the World Trade Center. And the Mm. cashier said to Joanne that maybe we ought to go. But Joanne insisted that she pay for what she did. She had a $20 bill and that she pay for the magnets before they left. And so she probably does have the very last receipt of anybody uh, from the World Trade Center stores because mm-hmm. it, it was actually timed some minutes after the tower that she was in had been hit by the plane. But she insisted that she buy the magnets for her daughter and again so her daughter was turning 11 she's now you add 20 years to that she's now married and um, 31 years old and really one of the things that 
was most striking to me about um, writing September 12th because there are, we do talk about a number of different kids and, and how mm -hmm. kids of, of the journalists, you know, at 20 years later, you know, the 15 year old is now 35 years old. And it's, it's, mm. just, it's kind of a, a tale of how time passes without us even noticing it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite, quite strange how, how people grow up kind of around the, around the, the sort of event, I guess. Another thing I wanted to ask, there was a thing in the, the book and earlier that you mentioned uh, about Wall Street Journal colleagues having to see kind of decapitated limbs and and horrible awful things did in your sort of research for the book did those mem memories bring back anything kind of traumatic for them retelling the story if they had to it did and and some of them it's it's two decades later some of them still suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder wow from their from their experiences mm -hmm. you know i wasn't trying to pry deeply into the personal lives of these journalists now and in fact i mean i originally had a section which i um, took out mostly because i didn't i couldn't complete it on time called where are they now mm -hmm. but it, but i did a lot of research on the where are they now and a lot of them remained remain emotionally troubled. Most, mm -hmm. most of them have overcome their physical ailments. There were a lot of them who had respiratory issues mm. uh, in the wake of 9-11 because they breathed in uh, the dust and smoke uh, from, the, from the building. One of the, one of the editors uh, suffered for really for I think 19 years and, and died uh, in uh, June of 2020, oh, gosh. And, and the medical report said that it was a as a result of something he had inhaled uh, into his lungs, and nobody had really spotted, you know, on on the day of 9/11. But he suffered wow. a long period of time because of all of that. Um, yeah. and I, the other thing, from a journalistic point of view, you know, it would be it would be these were men and women who, um, like all people in a workplace, some of them liked each other, some of them didn't particularly like each other. Mm. Their, their politics were very different. Um, some of them were very conservative. People think the Wall Street Journal is a conservative publication, but many of the news reporters are quite progressive. Mm -hmm. On 9-11, they forged a kind of bond that is probably similar to what happens in the military when you serve with men and women under fire. Um, yeah. Many of these people are very close still to this day, in part because they had a shared experience that nobody else can really understand what they went through in the way that they can. And so it, it, there, there are a lot of sociological yeah. long-term questions about all this of course it, it's kind of one of those things like it, it doesn't really matter what background you come from who you are what your political views are you just need to pull together and and, and make sure that that um everyone's okay and that everyone's you know doing doing well and as 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 you say having that shared experience definitely um speaking of sharing actually 
you mentioned that the other US bureaus sort of chipped in to help as well. What what part did they play in in getting the uh, getting the next edition of the paper out? Well, a lot of so the journal had significant bureaus in Washington D.C. Understandably, in Chicago, Los Angeles, Dallas, Boston, Atlanta. They were they were not as impacted by nine eleven. The Washington Bureau is located three blocks from the White House, um, not that far from the Pentagon where it was attacked. So it was kind of preoccupied. Uh, the but but I write about Los Angeles and Dallas in particular because they still had effective phone communication, etc. And so, for example. Um, one of the journalists who was um, whose front page first person story was part of the Pulitzer Prize winning package, uh, a reporter named John Bussey, when he was finally able to get to New Jersey and he had an amazing first person story to tell uh, about his own experience trying to escape the fallout. Um, the only place he could reach was the Los Angeles Bureau. And so mm. a payphone in New Jersey, he called the Los Angeles Bureau and dictated his notes to them. And then they were able to type it into a computer and send it to this backup facility in South Brunswick, New Jersey. And so really, again, even people who were thousands, literally thousands of miles away from um, the Wall Street Journal's normal newsroom found a way to step up and help out and um, that's what they did. And so there was a lot of reporting, you know, Los Angeles, for example, it was the, uh, wasn't a hub for aerospace reporting, West Coast, like companies like Boeing. Mm. Um, so these, a lot of these bureaus got on the phone to their, the companies they covered in the greater Chicago or Atlanta or Boston area to find out what the companies were doing. Um, they helped report which buildings were closed. So, for example, Disneyland shut down uh, on 9-11 because of the attacks uh, in San Francisco. The Pyramid Tower uh, shut down. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, that, they were reporting sort of what was the impact of the uh, terrorist attacks all around the country and really all around the world. Yeah, it must have been must have been difficult for them being thousands of miles away but then at the same time I guess they felt the impact the impact of the the attack from their colleagues perspective if that makes sense so they sort of heard the story and then must have thought oh my god like you know this is having an impact on me as well even though they're the other side, the other side of the country. Absolutely and many of them of course were worried that they're that, that they're colleagues um were injured or dead because oh, gosh they couldn't know there was a one of one of the key editors a gentleman named marcus broccoli couldn't get tried to get to he, he lives in he lived in brooklyn new york tried to get across the brooklyn bridge once the uh once the planes had attacked so he could get to the office couldn't do it ended up working from his home and one of his tasks was to keep an inventory of who they knew had survived and who they were worried about who had not survived. 
I mean, and think about that as a, as a job, you know, if you work in a large company and there's something that yeah. happens and somebody has the responsibility to figure out who's still alive and who's not, um, that's the type of thing that people who were not uh, in the immediate vicinity uh, have to grapple with, either literally making that list or making a mental list of who of my colleagues, who of my friends uh, at this newspaper um, have survived and who have not. Again, the good news, Amy, is that really everybody except for everybody survived and one person who was sick and hospitalized soon thereafter survived for at least another 19 years. So they actually got off, given that they were literally directly across the street from the World Trade Center, it's actually quite miraculous. Mm -hmm. No journalist died, no Wall Street Journal journalist died uh, on 9-11. That's that's good to hear. Um, obviously, sad about about the your um, the person who died. You know, nineteen years later, but they had nineteen years more more life than they they would have done had they died in in the attacks. So that's a, a silver lining, I suppose. Uh, well, that was absolutely fascinating. Um, thank you very much for joining me. Um, can I? Um, can I? Uh, say one thing for your sure. listeners. Um, I have set up, there's no cost. You don't have to buy the book or anything, but I have set up a form where any listener can share, and it's global, Amy, mm -hmm. share their own 9-11 experiences. Oh, wow. We'll publish it. And I'd like to just, if I may, give you that uh, URL. Where they, sure, go for it. It's tinyurl.com yep. slash where were you on 9-11? All spelled out. No numbers. Yeah. Okay. Tinyurl.com slash where were you on 9-11? And anybody anywhere in the world who wants to record for posterity what their own 9-11 experience was mm -hmm. are invited to just fill out a form on that, on that site. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining me and for answering my questions today. Pleasure. Thank you, Amy. Be well. Angie. I would like to say thank you to Dean for joining me for the interview. It was a fascinating um, insight into 9-11 and how the New York Journal got their paper out um, and they were awarded for it, which is brilliant. If you want to go and add your story as to where you were on 9-11 or what you were doing, please go to tinyurl.com slash where were you on 9-11. I will, don't worry, I will add that into the episode notes for you so you can go and so you can write in your story if you wish to. If you want to follow the podcast on social media, I'm at Amy Talks Podcast on Twitter and you can listen to the show now on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Mixcloud, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Just search Amy Talks. Until next time, bye.